Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Come on, admit it. If you're my age, you remember exactly where you were when you first heard this. That's the sound of 25-year-old Peter Frampton performing what would become one of the top-selling live records of all time. It was 1975, and Frampton Comes Alive would change his life. He was young, but hardly a newcomer. By then, he'd already made four solo records for Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss of A&M Records. Frampton, who recorded his first album when he was 14, started Humble Pie when he was 18. Frampton's signature sound is a mixture of virtuosic guitar, a powerful voice, and this electronic device called a talk box. As it turns out, the talk box wasn't his first successful foray into the world of musical gadgets. I realized that I was a techie when I was very young. I got my first reel-to-reel tape machine, and then I figured out that if I got another one, I could go sound on sound, you know, before any multi-tracking sort of thing, you know. And I figured that out pretty early. I was like, you know, 10 or 11. So (laughs) So I've been an engineer as long as... Uh, as long as I've been a musician. Has that anything that's helped you as a musician? You know, you're talking to somebody who your music is like so important to me. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, you, you talk so about much. me growing up when I was a kid, and you were very young then. I mean, Humble yeah. Pie, yeah, you yeah, were a yeah. kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
You know, when I was growing up, there was like the Beatles, the Stones, Zeppelin, the Who, and Humble Pie. <laughs> you don't want to know what I put in my body listening to I Don't Need No Doctor. <laughs> yes. I mean, you don't want to know. But anyway, so, but my point is, is that do you think that that work has made you a better musician? Because you are such a virtuosic guitarist and such a great guitarist. Um, sound is very inspirational to me. I remember the reason that I wanted to learn guitar was because I heard the sounds of all these people on TV and on the radio, electric guitar, very young. And something, I'm, I have a very acute sense of sound and I've always had that. If I don't have a good sound, I can't play very well. So I've always worked out what makes a good sound? How do you get a good sound? Technically. Technically. And then one of the first sessions I ever did, Bill Wyman of the Stones produced it when I was 14. And the first engineer I worked with was Glyn Johns, right. who is, if people don't know, he's one of the most famous engineers of all time. Stones engineer. Yeah. yeah. Zeppelin, Eagles, yeah. the, the band, the, <laughs> just everybody. Yeah, Humble Pie. Yeah. And then being a gadget freak early on, I just was over like a little birdie on their shoulder. And I was, well, what, what, what's that? What are you doing there? I just learned how to engineers. So I, I really enjoy that part of it as well, immensely. How do you end up as a 14-year-old <laughs> and Wyman wants to produce your track? Well, I started playing guitar just before I was eight years old. and Were either of your parents musical? Yes. Um, you grew up in England? Yes. Where? About 12 miles south of London in Bromley, hmm. Kent. And... Um, my mother was definitely would have been an entertainer. She was, but uh, my grandparents wouldn't allow her to become an actress. She wanted to be an actress. Her father was a singer. Yes, we have a lot of musical genes. And, and your dad? Uh, my dad played. Uh, his teacher, an artist. He played guitar in a college dance band before the war. Before did the you grow up hearing him play guitar? He was more into his art, mm -hmm. but he did. He was the one that taught me how to sing Michael Row the Boat, you know, <laughs> with two chords, basically. Yeah. And then Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley was another biggie for me. Uh -huh. Then it was Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, and our English, The Shadows, Cliff Richard and The Shadows. So that's what, how I started playing guitar because of American music, obviously. That's what we all did, and we were all clamoring for American music before the Beatles. Yeah. And then so I was known in, locally as this young little upstart good guitar player, very young, ended up in a semi-pro band still at school that had the drummer that was the original drummer of the Rolling Stones called Tony Chapman, who introduced Bill to the Stones. He didn't end up staying in the Stones, and Bill felt he owed him a, uh, a favor, I would say, said, look, put a band together and I'll produce it. And he comes into the music shop I'm working on the Saturdays when I'm about 14 and restringing guitars for the guy there. He said... I want you to be in my band, you know. I said, well, I'll have to speak to Dad, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> First thing I know, we're in a van. We pick up Bill Wyman in Penge, <laughs> who sits in the front. The van goes very quiet. We've got a Rolling Stone in the front seat. Yeah. We go up to London, and I meet Glenn Johns, and we make a record. Man, like everyone is talking about soul today. Well, you know what I mean? What was the record? It was called Hole in My Soul. 
and it was a cover of an American song. And um, what was the name of the band? The Preachers. So that was it. And um, so music was your entire life. Yes. You were in the guitar shop in Kent. Yeah. Fixing strings on guitars for yes, people. Yes. Shining guitars up. And the next thing you know, Bill Wyman's in the car, and you're off to go do "Hole in My Soul" with the Preachers. Yes. A man like you walked around us so much, his shoe fell off. What year is this? This is '64. So the Stones were and the Beatles were in full swing by then. Yes, and, and in fact, we did that year. Uh, the Stones were given "Ready, Steady, Go." They took over the show "Ready, Steady, Go" for one week, and each one of the Stones had their choice of act to be on. You know, and of course, Bill chose us. So I'm on TV when I'm just before I'm. I turn 15. Is there when any I, footage of that? Do you have footage uh, of that? If anybody's got it, Bill's got it because right. he's he's the historian. You know, but. Uh, that was pretty amazing. Do you miss living in England? You're such an American in so many ways. Yes. You've lived here for years, haven't you? Years yes, and years. 70, 75, I, I came to New York, actually. I miss my family, my brother and his family. I miss friends and stuff, but my children are here. Right. When I first came to America with Humble Pie and I turned on the radio, I said, I'm moving here just seemed like this was the place that was all happening. That was the old and this is the new. Yeah, and I'd lived through the swinging 60s of London, you know, and that was exciting too. And I love England, don't get me wrong. I I just don't think I would ever live there again. I'd just, i be too far from my kids. This is is home now. Yeah. So when you finish The the Hole in My Soul uh, (laughs) on uh, uh, the show with Bill Wyman, he's your selection there on the show, what happens then? Then um, I'm 16 It's school holidays in the summer of 66. Big local band, The Herd, come to me and say, we saw you in The Preachers and we're having a change around. Would you come and and help us out for the summer? 16. (laughs) So I said, okay. So it gets close to September when I'm going to go back to school and they said, here's an offer. We want you to be the lead guitarist and the lead guitarist is going to play bass and we want to be a four-piece instead of five-piece and would you join the herd? I said, oh, I've got to go back to school, do my sixth form, get my A-levels and go to Guildhall <laughs> yeah. School of Let Music. Grow up. That was my plan, to go to music college. You know? Let me grow a beard. You're right, <laughs> at <laughs> least. Let me, let me get a few chest hairs here and I'll call you. Yeah, I haven't even had a shandy yet. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. <laughs> so I went to Dad and Mom and I said, look, I really want to do this. This is a professional band, you know, they're great. They're a big band and... Um, my dad said, well, and they knew that this was on the cards, you know, this was coming up, that they knew by this time I was going to be a musician. And so he said, well, look, if you left here and you got a job at the post office, you'd get 15 pounds a week. I want to get an assurance from this band that you're going to get 15 pounds a week. I said, well, if you can do that deal there, that'll be great. I don't think they earn enough to pay themselves 15 pounds. He said, well, that's what you, I'm going minimum wage for you. So that was the last deal my dad did for me. <laughs> um, because we started to become a little better and earn more money. Beginning, they couldn't pay themselves 15. Eventually it was a bargain. Yeah, because they yeah. paid me 15, they got 15. Your father was no Brian Epstein. <laughs> so that was the end of him as a manager. Everything changed and The Herd became, had like three big top ten hits and and I became very well known 
in Europe as a guitar player singer. Now, by the time you leave the herd, you leave them in what year? The herd, after the, the, uh, these three big hits and an album, we realized that we were losing money still, and, and um, there was no reason, because we saw the figures, what was coming in and what we were getting paid and all that. So we reached out, and Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane of the Small Faces sure. said, look, we've been through this. We've been screwed, you know, by management or business manager, whatever. They clued us in, which was very nice of them, and said they'd help us produce a track or two on, on the next album we were going to do, which they did. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in with the Small Faces now at various functions and, uh, and wanted to join the Small Faces. That wasn't to be... Steve wanted me to join the Small Faces, but they weren't so thrilled with that. So in the end, uh, Steve called me up and said, look, I've left the Small Faces, let's form a band. And that's how Humble Pie basically formed in right at the end of, in 68. So the two of those things closely overlapped. Yes. At the end of uh, yes. the herd and forming the Humble Pie. Yes. And it was basically two ex Teeny Bopper stars. Right. Steve Marriott was like the face of 67 and I was the face of 68 sort of thing. And by 68, how old are you? 18. Now, you're 18 years old and you've been doing this professionally since you were 14 years old and you're in the world of rock and roll and especially as we go from the 60s, from 64 to 68, it gets a little more grainy, if you will. In yes. terms of It gets a little <clears throat> more vivid in terms of drugs and my, my sense right. of the culture. Was that difficult for you to be the underaged... You know, man-child, I mean, you're, the, you're, you're like Mozart, you're like this prodigy, but you're a kid. Right. And you're in this room with some pretty, I would imagine, yes. some pretty hard-living people. Well, yeah, um, I, I was pretty much of a late bloomer. I had to really learn to drink, you know. Do people I, expect you to? I think so. Yeah, all, there is You're in pressure. the band and yeah, you're, you're, yeah. it doesn't matter your age. Didn't really like... It's like you're in the army. Yeah, exactly. you got to swear and drink, yeah. you know, and now do drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I passed out so many times from anxiety attacks from pot. I'm trying to get high, yeah. please. But anyway, I, I managed it in the end. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, not really when I was with Humble Pie. What changed? I think it was my solo career and then getting to the point where it was surreal. Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to okay. get to that. Yeah, well, yeah. that. That was the time. Right. So you're with Humble Pie and you're in England. Yes. And you perform with them for how many years? Uh, 68, 69, 71, four years. And well, how would you characterize that period for yourself? Did you enjoy it? The, unbelievable. Yeah. They were very popular. Uh, yes. In the States as well. Yes. That band brought me to America. Where'd you play? Fillmore oh, the East. Right. <laughs> That's where we started. We, I met, I, I mean, probably one of the first gigs, I met Bill Graham. You know, you realize now when I look back, it was the beginnings of the creation of rock and roll shows. Yeah. Truly. Bill Graham was the guy on how to do it live. Where would you record Humble Pie? In London? We recorded at Olympic in, in the, the famous Olympic where the Stones and Zeppelin recorded, and I did all my solo stuff there as well. Either there or Island Studios, which was Chris Blackwell's place. So you never recorded in the U.S.? No. No, the first thing we ever did was record the live album of, of Humble Pie at the Fillmore. Right. And why did Humble Pie end? A couple of reasons. I was feeling claustrophobic in the band because we started off very democratic and doing it, all different types of music. And now our, our stage act was narrowing and we were just doing more more of the 
heavy rock and roll, which I love, don't get me wrong. That's my riff, I Don't Need No Doctor. That's me jamming at, uh, the sound check in uh, Madison Square Garden. And Steve just jumped up on the stage and started singing I Don't Need No Doctor over that riff. He and I were very much... That's him singing. Yeah, yeah. He's the one that says, it's been a gas! Yeah, we go home on Monday. <laughs> we go home on Monday. But I want to tell you, we're not had a gas this time. It's really been a gas. <laughs> How old is he then? Oh, he was probably a couple of years older than me. Okay, so yeah, he's still yeah. one with the kid. But you feel claustrophobic. Why? Well, because we want, I wasn't uh, being able to do the music, all of this music that I wanted to do. Humble Pie started off really split between acoustic and electric. And also I was coming into my own and Steve and I fought like brothers. The Glimmer Twins. Yes, that's which which is why Humble Pie was so fiery, I think, because musically it was phenomenal. You know, sometimes we'd agree and sometimes we just wouldn't agree. It was very sad for me because I knew it would upset them, um, but I just felt that I had to, uh, it was time to go on and... Did you know where you wanted to go? No idea. I knew that I was... I didn't want to form another band. I wanted to become a solo artist at you that did. point. Yes. Why? Because I wanted to make all the decisions because I'm a complete control freak. <laughs> but, but seriously, did you feel yeah. you wanted creative? Yeah. You wanted more I wanted more to try things Elton. that... Yeah, I wanted to try things that maybe other people wouldn't want to try. You know, I wanted to do it. And I have to say that it, it wouldn't have been... I wouldn't have had a solo career had it not been for Humble Pie. I learned so much from working with Steve Marriott. I have to hand him a lot of the credit for the sort of things that he introduced me to listen to as well. Music, blues and Bill Black Combo and stuff like that. That was really influential to me. So that's why it was a, a, a bittersweet thing leaving. I wanted to leave, but I didn't want to leave. And then, of course, as soon as I left, the live album that I had a big hand in mixing, because I'm the gadget freak and the engineer, with uh, Eddie Kramer, Rockin' the Fillmore, comes out. I've left at, right at that point, and it zooms up the charts. It's Humble Pie's first gold record, and I'm going... Holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. It's the first big blooper of my career. You know, I've made a big mistake. Seems like dad's back on the job. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) Is he in the office again? (laughs) I've framed him at this time. Yes, absolutely. So then it was four studio albums before we did Comes Alive, you know, and a lot lot of touring. And where are you living then? You still hadn't uh, moved here yet. I was still living in England until 75 when I finished the fourth solo record in England and then moved over. I actually moved to New York and stayed at the Mount Kisco Holiday Inn on New Year's Eve in 1974. Swinging. Yeah, was it? Beautiful. <laughs> and found Bob Mayo, Bob Mayo on keyboards from the live record, in the band at the uh, Holiday Inn. It's, it's a long story, but... Yeah, so basically the first day of 75 was I was now living in America. When you do Comes Alive, how much of the music on that is new music on that album? How much of it was stuff you mined from the previous four solo albums? It was basically all stuff that came from 
the four studio albums and Rock On from Shine On was a Humble Pie track that I'd written. It was actually from five albums, so it was like six years' worth of work mining that went into that one live record. And for people who don't know, that live performance was recorded in multiple locations or in one? Most of it was one location. Which was? A Winterland in San Francisco, a Bill Graham gig, where The Last Waltz was filmed. Two nights before, we'd played the Marin Civic Center, and we'd done two shows there, so we recorded that. I think a couple of numbers came from there. Doobie War, I think, comes from there, maybe one of the acoustic songs, but Winterland was the first big headline uh, show we'd ever done, I'd ever done, with my name on the ticket. People were coming to see me for, for because the the album right prior to uh, Comes Alive, just Frampton, was the biggest one so far, biggest seller. It had done sold like 300,000 copies, which was mega for me. That was better than all the so others. So things in, in that four-album run prior to the live album in Winterland, things were getting better. The, the it, sales it was, were going yeah. They, they were. But that one was definitely On the setting uptick. me up. It was setting me up for something. How many nights at Winterland? One. One, one show. Okay, okay, okay. So stop. So... Let's cut the bullshit. <laughs> Let's cut the bullshit. You're in Winterland. Yes. And would you say, and the show goes on what time? Eight o'clock, nine o'clock, nine o'clock? Yeah, probably react, probably quarter to nine, something like that. So somewhere between you pull up to Winterland and you go out a quarter to nine, the devil came in your room and made a deal with you, correct? You signed a deal with Absolutely, the devil. Absolutely, yes. The devil showed up. Yes. Poured himself a drink, sat down, and said, Peter, 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 Peter. Let's cut, let's cut to the chase. It was chase. Peter Cook, actually. It was Peter Cook. Cook right. <laughs> and, he's, and he said, let's make a deal. Or I'm the devil. And the devil <laughs> makes this deal with you because what happened? First of all, there's probably, I th- if I'm not mistaken, if there wasn't 7,500 people out there, then I thought there was, but it's, it definitely sounds like it. It's a big room. They go nuts when we walk out, and it just takes you to a different level, you know. It felt good. It was one of those shows when you come off and you look at the band and you just go, I wish we'd recorded that. That was, like, so good, man. And then we went, we did! You (laughs) You know, we did did record record that. We forgot we were... You see, the event was so much more important than the recording. I don't even remember the truck being there. Recording is June of 1975, and it's released when? We're still mixing right up up before Christmas, and then it comes out, I believe, on like January 17th or something like that. Of 76. January 9th or, yeah, of 76. And what happens? Well, I knew we were going to tour the whole year, so right after Christmas, I went down to the Bahamas for 10 days and relaxed. Before I left... We had put one show on at Cobo Hall in Detroit, which is a big room. And that's all I knew. And so I go away and I don't call anybody. I'm just on the beach and snorkeling or whatever. I come back. We've sold four shows out. And I said, what happened? You know, and the album has just started to be on the radio, you know. And um, that's when 
everything just went went through the roof. You know, it, after all this time, people think it is overnight, but it's not overnight no. in the scheme of things. No. No. But but it's but, a huge leap for you. Yes, but it's not overnight success. But it is. It's a heady experience. Is this still the highest selling live album of all time? Or it's, among it's them? in dispute. Right, but, right. Yeah, but, but, but it's up there. Yeah, because my record is only counted as one, one album. A certain other artist had it made so that you could count. Um, if you released six CD uh, live set, you can count it six times. Well, they didn't do that retroactively. So in my mind, it's still the biggest seller. Sure. Yes. And, and eventually, how many albums did you sell? We're up in the 17 million now. 17 million records of this yeah. show. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, back with more of Peter Frampton. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you come out of that experience and having this huge thing, I want to talk to you not about how it affected you career-wise, because obviously that wasn't important. How did it affect you personally? Were you married at the time? Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time. I, I, I don't think anybody can be ready for that kind of success. And I'm pretty down-to-earth person. I take things as they come. As I said earlier to you, I was a late bloomer when it came to dulling anything, you know. It was almost unbelievable the amount of success. You get these phone calls in quick succession. 
you're number one in in the charts, you know, and I, I'm going, wait a second, say that one more time, yeah. and who are you? And then within three or four weeks of that, I get the call saying, it's the biggest selling record of all time. You've just outsold Carol King's Tapestry. Right. And it's... Um, was that the time you thought you had to start numbing yourself? Yeah, it was crazy yeah. because people just wanted... You didn't know how to deal with that. No, it was very You hard. don't know how to deal with how people treat you differently. Exactly. And, and being always being respectful and, and never really thinking of myself as anything special because I've never been... A, that's just not my character. And what good does it do you? I felt embarrassed yeah. that I was that. This entity became, it was me over here, you know. Yes, it was very hard to deal with, yeah. But were you proud of the record? Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. I'm still proud of the record. Because it's one thing when people become famous and have, a, regardless of, their, of the ramp up, regardless of the whole timeline of their career, and then they have some seismic event like that, and they don't really deserve it. And when in your case, you're great. I mean, you really are phenomenal. But aside from your own gifts, who helped really, really make the record roll out that way? Jerry? Um, Jerry, def well, I have to say Jerry and Herb for sticking with me as long. They stuck with Humble Pie, too. They stuck with Police. They stuck with, well, Police happened pretty quickly. But there's a lot of acts in those days that... Needed nurturing. Needed nurturing. And it was like a... Um, a club, you know, you come over here and Jerry and Herb never told us what to write or what to record. They let us do our thing and find ourselves. And I have to say, DeAnthony, the manager, was a great promoter. He wasn't terrific with finances, but <laughs> especially mine. And then Frank Barcelona, the agent who was, if you weren't with Frank, you weren't anybody. You know, that was premier talent was the Who place. else did he handle? Everybody, Springsteen, Led Zeppelin, I mean, everybody, The Who, The Lot, everybody. Did that plague you at that time about finances? Did you find that, that, that you didn't get what you thought was fair? Well, I was ripped off. Yeah. I mean, but, but I would go back and talk to Bill Wyman, you know, because he's sort of like my mentor, my, my older brother. He said, oh, we all get ripped off stones. The Beatles, we all got ripped off, you know, and then you learn and you go and do it again, you know. I'll tell you why it happens. It's because I'm a musician. I'm a creative person. I've never done what I do for money. I'm stupid when it comes to money, you know. And You left as, a lot of money on the table. Yes. So I trusted people to look after things for me, and they didn't. They took it. Did that change after you had the number one selling album in the world? Well, that's when it happened. That's when it started. And some people will happen to over and over again, but I have a team now that I wish I had then, obviously. But, and I've become, I actually tutored myself in math a little bit after that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but it's, you know what I mean? I have to blame myself as much as I blame everybody else. I mean, you almost want to believe, as I do, that, that I couldn't do... You might not have been able to do the work you did on the level you did if your mind was on something else. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. When something really big hits in the entertainment business, it's like feast or famine. It's either it's not a hit, movie, record, whatever, and nothing comes in. Or it's like a blockbuster and all this money comes in and it all comes into one place. And when you see a pile of money like this, it brings out thoughts that people didn't normally have before. You know what I mean? It's the, um, 
the availability of all that cash all at once, you know, that... Well, especially in the music business, because there's nothing like the music business for making money. Except for the fact that music is free now. Well, it, it is different now, yeah. I mean, you used to tour to promote the record. And now? Now you make the record to promote the tour. The record is a giveaway. The CD is a giveaway. The dollars are on the live performing. Yes. That's how it is for you. Well, yeah, that's all. And that's most all. artists. Yeah, and luckily my reputation is as a live performer, so it, it's been phenomenal for me. But it's hard work touring, but I love it, so that's not hard work for me. You came into New York recently, and you did that at the Beacon here in New York. Correct? Yes. And how many shows did you do? For most of 13 months, we were doing five shows a week, and it's a three-hour show. So we were doing Comes Alive first, which is an hour and 40, and then we were doing uh, excerpts from everything else in my career as well for another hour and 15 or 20, you know. So it was, uh, <laughs> we were killing ourselves. How did it feel? Well, it felt great. The first show we did um, was in New Jersey. The first uh, time you did Comes Alive concert yes. style. First time we played it since 76. Okay. You know, <laughs> and then the second show was The Beacon. The place went nuts. Yeah. You know, they just went berserk. You know? Are you going to do it again? I, I don't know whether I'll do the entire thing again. Will I've you do said, Comes Alive again? Not for a while, okay. anyway. God damn it. <laughs> no, no, you made no. We filmed it. And, you did um, film it? Yeah, at the Beacon and in What um, are you going to do Milwaukee. with that? Where is that going? It's going to be a DVD. In fact, that's where I'm going on Sunday to go back home to my studio to mix the audio. What are you going to do with it? You're going to release it as a, just as a DVD or DVD, as a film yes. in theaters or on TV? No, it'll probably just be a DVD. And, and You don't want to do this on TV? Oh, I'd love to, yeah. Have you got an in there, maybe? Oh, I can't believe If it's a documentary, are there any backstage footage? Um, I've got the story, and, and it's filmed, of when my guitar was returned. What happened to that guitar? What's the story? Well, um, first of all, we're talking about the guitar that's on the front cover of Comes Alive, which I got given to me by Mark Mariana in 1970 when I was playing the Fillmore West with Humble Pie. And I was having a terrible time with the guitar that I had at that that night and Mark said to me you know I could see you having problems with that do you want to try my Les Paul tomorrow I said well I'm not really big on Les Pauls but okay all right anything's better than this so he brought it to me I played it I don't think my feet touched the ground the entire night it's the best (laughs) guitar I've ever played you know 54 Les Paul 54 Les Paul so then I played that guitar on Rock On and also of Humble Pie and also Rock in the Fillmore. That's the guitar I use on there. Basically, I use that exclusively. It's the only guitar I play all the way through all my solo records, and including Frampton Comes Alive. And you were never tempted to put that down? And put you, that was it? That was you it. You married that guitar? Yes, yes. It was just <laughs> this one. I had a 55 Strat that I would always use for Show Me The Way because I needed a cleaner sound, you uh-huh. know. So that was, that was on Show Me The Way. So then we get to touring South America in 1980. We just finished playing Caracas, Venezuela, and we had a day off. And so we flew commercially to Panama, waiting for the gear to arrive on a cargo plane. Well, it never got off the runway in Caracas. It crashed on takeoff. My road manager came to me. I'm having this huge meal on my day off with my wife at the time. And he said, I got some bad news. And he says, the plane crashed on takeoff. I said, 
my guitar. Yeah. He said, mm-hmm. And like six people, loading people, the pilot, co-pilot, loading inspector, all that. So, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, oh people died. So that took oh, precedent oh, over everything. Yeah, then course. he put it in perspective, you know, and there's the pilot's wife sitting at the bar oh. uh, who doesn't know yet. It was horrendous. So anyway, we limped through the end of that tour, basically, with borrowed equipment, sent someone down, my guitar tech at the time, a week later to see what was left. Nothing was left supposedly. And what had happened, the tail had broken off. Guitars were actually in a trunk. In cases. In cases. And the way the story goes is they had a guard to guard the crash site, the debris site, till the insurance people came down. And he decided that the guitars would be much safer at his house. No. Yes. and then, In Caracas. Yes, in Caracas. This is 1980. 1980. Two years ago... Which is 30 years later. 30 years later. I opened my info at frampton.com email because anybody can email me and I see them all. I open up this one and there's a picture, a photograph of my guitar. Slightly singed, but <laughs> but it's Gloriously my last. Slightly singed. <laughs> right at the top, you know. Uh, slightly singed. But, but there it is. There's a picture and I thought, could this you be? You see this picture where? In an email to me from someone who'd got a hold of the guitar, as it happens in Curaçao, which is a little island off the coast of Caracas, someone had um, sold it to this gentleman, and he took it to someone who fixed guitars, and they knew what it was. And it took two years of a very gray area. And was he saying, like, I don't want to get processed. I want to get this guitar to you, but I don't want to go to jail. That was the thing. No really? one wanted to actually come. It wasn't come. about money. It wasn't about him. He wanted to. They, they, there was money involved. He, but would, he would have appreciated a gratuity. There was a reward talked about. But every time it would get close to someone coming in, they'd find something, reason why they couldn't come in. So that's why it took two years. And then in the end... The guy actually checked to see if we had booked him a hotel because he just saw himself in handcuffs at Miami Airport. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he knew who had it, and the person who had it needed some money, and so he went to the tourist bureau of Curaçao and said, look, if you lend me the money or give me the money to go buy this, I can find this. This will be a great tourism story for Curaçao. And, um, they did? And they did, and they came, and the two of them, the tourism president of the tourism board from the government and the gentleman who found the guitar knew where it was, brought it to Nashville. We had three cameras as soon as he walked in. Waiting. And what happens? Well, the two gentlemen walk in and he's got it in this probably one of the worst looking gig bags I've ever seen in my life. Cheap old plastic thing. He puts it beside him, you know, and he tells the story in broken English of how this person had it, and the whole thing. He hands it to me and he goes, feel it, Peter, feel it. So, and I know that he knows because it was the lightest Les Paul I'd ever played. So I just felt it in the case and I went, oh, this could be it, you know. Opened it up, I just looked at it and I just feel it like that and I go, it's my guitar. And how badly was it singed? Where? Just around the very top. Uh, it, it lost the binding around the, the headstock. Did you get that replaced? No, I didn't. I left, left it, it. I've left it with its battle yeah. scars. Yeah. I, I, Gibson made it playable. 
Yeah. So we refretted it. You call it the Caracas kiss. Yeah. <laughs> on the tip there. And does it sound the same? Does it feel the same? Oh, my God. It's not God. damaged at all? No. Just it's... that singe. Yeah, and when I first played it at rehearsals with the band, everybody had this, like, Cheshire cat grin on their face <laughs> because it has this sound, and it sounds like Frampton Comes Alive. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you don't have to try too hard. And you got that back when? I got it back just before we started touring in February and March for the last American leg. I used it a little bit at rehearsals, and then I brought it out for the first night at the Beacon. I think the guitar is more famous than I am now, so. (laughs) (laughs) But you were meant to play that music with that guitar. Yeah, and I, I, I remember saying to someone that before I went out that night, I just hope emotionally I'm going to be able to play it and I brought it out for Do You Feel and I messed up the first lick because I couldn't believe I was playing right. it. How can you fumble? <laughs> Me, I well, did. It's you know. okay. It was like meant to be, you know. I it, And once I got, the, it was saying to me, come on, get it together, you know. And yes, it's I'm back, now get over it, you know. Peter Frampton has just completed his 35th anniversary tour of Frampton Comes Alive and says he plans to release the DVD this fall. In addition to celebrating his past, he's also busy with new projects, including a collaboration with the Cincinnati Ballet, which will debut next spring. What music do you listen to now? Who do you like? Um, right now, this week, Band of Skulls. My son turned me on to, and daughter turned me on to them, and I went to Coachella. I saw Radiohead. I still, I'm a Radiohead fanatic. I, I just love them. I think they're so not mainstream, but they became mainstream because they're just so unique. It was an eye-opener for me to go to Coachella with my daughter, who's 16, and, and just have fun. This is Alec Baldwin, and if you haven't figured this out by now, I'm one of Peter Frampton's biggest fans. You know, I haven't said this to many people who've come and done this show, but I can't thank you enough. Oh, Because your welcome. music is so important to me. Oh, thank I you. I mean, I have listened to you, and I have loved your music and your playing for so long. I mean, it's like it's such a part of my life. You are a great, great, well, great musician. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks. Here's The Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo, with support from Jim Briggs, Brian Cosgrove, Wendy Dore, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, and Ariana Picari. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.